What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. And here we are all together again for another Blunt Business on CannabisRadio.com. My next guest has been a Fortune 500 business executive whose new book, Breaking the Stigma, Racism, the Opioid Endemic, Lies and Inviting Grandma to the Dispensary, provides a framework for becoming a prosperous cannabis retailer, showing you how to overcome your product's negative connotations and impart vital need-to-know truths about the cannabis industry. And joining me right now is the CEO of Cannabis Business Growth and the author of the said book, Charlena Berry. Charlena, thanks for being on with us. Hey, thank you for having me today. I'm really happy to be here. My pleasure. So I want to take a few passages from the book as we start off this interview and just get your take on a few things from it. Now, number one, you leave off the book talking about the industry's personal responsibility to break the long-standing stigma. You wrote this in the book, quote, to break the stigma, we just we can't just be good retailers. We have to be great. We have to work harder, be better, and hold ourselves to a higher standard. It might not be fair, but it's a reality, and it's our responsibility as industry professionals. I won't pretend like it's easy, but the rewards are worth it. Breaking the stigma, In breaking the stigma, we can broaden our customer base and connect with our customers in a way that inspires loyalty. We can also hopefully encourage better, more just legalization of cannabis, which will make our jobs easier and protect our customers from discrimination. Bottom line. Breaking the stigma is good for business, and it's just the right thing to do, end quote. So I've noticed in the last five years, <clears throat> or even more before that, since we started Cannabis Radio in 2015, we've seen a plethora of Fortune 500 executives. Listen, if you want to just know who they are, 
Just listen to our Plant Profits program on Cannabis Radio every week. We have basically another C-level executive on that has had great experience from previous work. Pick a field, pick an industry that they came from. Even on this program in the same way. The economic progress, aside from the executives that have come in, the, the leadership, the economic progress the industry has made, and the number of states who have rolled out medical or adult-use cannabis, Charlena, why do you feel like the business and the business side of cannabis needs to take on this task more? You know, I come from a, the, you know, the executive side of the industry, and I, I started in the industry as what I would say is like a non-believer. Cannabis is a Trojan horse. Um, and since then, I've gone full circle to say I devoutly believe in the power of the plant. Um, and I also have come to the belief that cannabis should be accessible to everyone as a human right. Um, the only way to make it accessible is to break down the legislation and the laws preventing it from the states where there's not accessibility still. Uh, I think of deep South states, I think of states like Georgia who, um, you know, they essentially said, oh, we'll legalize medical cannabis, but they put a THC cap on it of 0.3%, basically saying it's hemp. That's a law that exists that's supposed to bring medical cannabis to market, but it's it doesn't really. And so when you look at places in, in the still medical states, um, <clears throat> there is still in, in states with license caps, there's still not the accessibility of full rec states like a Colorado, a California, an Oregon or a Washington. You don't have the diversity in products to choose from. You don't have the diversity in cannabis genetics. Um, and really, you know, those people are still looking uh, to the black market to provide their, their, their marijuana. Um, and when you look to the black market, you know, I, I'm grateful for the black market because they do meet the needs of those customers. However, um, that product is still untested. There's been reports in Connecticut, um, I want to say about two months ago, where in Connecticut, they actually found marijuana that was laced with fentanyl um, because that's tremendously prevalent um, to put fentanyl in everything these days. And so it remains dangerous to keep a black market or a gray market alive. And so as industry professionals, not just is it good for business to break the barriers of cannabis stigmas to bring the business to life, it's important for accessibility across the nation. It, there's not fair access right now. And the only people that are gonna bring fair access are those of us that are leaders of the industry. And that's why it's important for us as executives regardless of where we came from, uh, to take this this on and, and to continue to fight for advocacy and fair access. But for this to happen, we need law enforcement, first of all, to take to unpack the fact about the illicit market. I mean, it's not as if, I remember going back to the New York Times and looking at a story from 2018, where they went back and they mentioned about getting, you know, thousands of, of complaints every month to the Cannabis Control Board in California and just noticing that, you know, it's California, and New York are going to be examples where an illicit market is going to be still. I mean, I don't know what you do right now to curb all that. But the thing is, I don't think you can ever find a, an all be all solution to the illicit market. But there's a way to definitely distinguish. Listen, there are going to be bad actors and we are doing our best to be above board. We have set ourselves 
every company, aside from the standards that every state has implemented, every cannabis control board has implemented, you know, whether it's Canada, wherever. It's a matter of we have our standards, and they are well high above. And the compliance now that we have in the industry, it's that's a word. It's just a buzzword altogether. We know that there's uh, there's a lot of institutions for education, higher education, people that are leaving the mainstream field of whatever business they might be, could be nursing or in, in the medical field and going into the field of compliance because it's high paying and there's a lot of jobs available in that field for people to really basically show overs oversight transparency. You can only control so much what's being done within the cultivation, going from seed to sale, protecting that process. That's one thing. But outside of that, I don't know what you do. That's where you have to confer with law enforcement. But again, that's they're, they're going to have their own stigma that is being portrayed. And I think that's there are a lot of reasons that are outside of this. We're going to talk about that after a break. But I want to go ahead and bring up real quickly about standards. So at the moment, we have, you know, California, Colorado, they have their own set of and every other every other state has followed along with what the initial state start off with, especially with Colorado being such an example, exemplary example of showing rollouts to legal states with a universal benchmark for federal legalization. I mean, when you look at what Senator Chuck Schumer, when he talked about he's trying to go and get the Moore Act passed, his thing is he looked at Colorado and that was somebody of a, you know high importance in office, seeing that Colorado was going to be, thought it was going to be a shit show, honestly, but it didn't. Thought it would be an economic downfall and never happened. That was somebody that, was, that said, okay, Colorado did it right, and look, this is an example by which the rest of the country can follow, which is why now he has so many people, and he's so many Southern Democrats now ready to go and jump <laughs> on board and support, and why there was such a support from lobbyists and other fields to try to get that act passed. And I think that's eventually what's going to happen, once there, which we'll talk about as well. But what I want to ask you real quick is, if, the federal, if and when the federal approval happens, if Congress is able to enact federal legalization, how long, how far will that go to breaking the long-standing stigma? I think that there's still a huge generation that was brainwashed by the war on drugs <clears throat> in that, yes, federal legislation will help. However, it is something that the stigma is broken down at an individual at a time, right? All a passing federal legislation does, it's important, is that it opens up banking, right? Banking's a huge problem. Um, and then it re would remove it from the Schedule One list, right? I believe cannabis being a Schedule One drug is a fundamental lie. And I talk about that a lot in the book, it, 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 that it's just a flat out lie that the FDA has, has told us. That I was looking last night, um, cocaine remains underneath marijuana. And so I think it's only the start. I think we have years to rebuild the reputation with individuals to stop thinking of the plant and the quote unquote dirty stoner look. I think a lot of people have come around. It's become more mainstream. However, it's going to be an individual at a time understanding and learning for themselves and having that epiphany to say that, yes, this is something that is positive for the community. Um, I think most Americans are neutral or in favor of it. They're like, marijuana is not that bad. 
Um, but you know, I, you still get, you know, at least in, in, you know, I have a big divide in my family. I have the side that's, you know, marijuana is great. They're users. And then I have the side that's like, mm, it's still kind of bad. And then the, the side of the family that's like, oh, I, you know, I can't believe you work in weed. And so it's getting those people on the far side to say, oh, it's not that bad. Right. And I, I think that's still leftovers of, of the war on drugs and, and the just say no campaigns. But then if legalization were to happen, decriminalizing would be part of that point. And a lot of we know we talk about when it comes to social equity and really just taking care of disenfranchise and, you know, people that have been oppressed as a result of, of cannabis mm-hmm. incarceration. When you take that off of there and it's no longer illegal, cannabis can't be considered illegal. It can be advertised. It can be everything. The, the, the reins are off of that. There's no longer a taboo that attaches to it. Now, that stutter culture will always remain. That's the one thing I can tell you when I look at this industry is that you're going to still have companies that will market to that kind of lifestyle because that's where it comes from. So you'll have certain companies that will have certain names that will just follow along with it. You will have people that, you know, celebrities that have kind of played off to that kind of point, like the Seth Rogans of the world that will also, I mean, you know, it's those people that are front and center with the highest presence that are going to still be considered, oh, but they're stoners and this and that. They're going to get that still. I just don't think I worry about too much about those that might, that, that stoner culture being such a, a, a major focal point to me but i think if it's taken away where the cops law enforcement can't they don't need to do anything anymore it's just you know you can consume cannabis like you do tobacco or alcohol that's that would take away a lot of the stigma like that 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 whole stigma would fade away as much as it possibly could don't you think um to me there's like it's like a it's a migration so the, the way that I see it is that, you know, if officers, police officers don't have to pursue it anymore, that is a start, right? They, they're no longer treating people like criminals. I think there's going to be officers that even though they're told not to pursue it, right, they're still going to have that emotional tie to a, a, a lifelong pursuit of cannabis users as being criminals that it will take time to get them used to the idea that that people who use cannabis are no longer criminals. Right. So I don't think that the day that there'll be a moment that that changes and breaks down the stigma. I think it sets it up to break the stigma down over a period of time. But then again, if they are trying to get and pull people over, they're trying to, you know, get somebody to be searched for for drugs. You know, what will happen is I think the legal system will come into play. Listen, you're going after my client. And, you know, I can just see where the legal yep. system will kind of rectify that situation because there'll be enough ambul- ambulance chasing lawyers that will say, you know what, you're you're charging my client and you're looking at him because of this and that. But the the laws don't state that cannabis is legal anymore. You know, that's where you could absolutely that's where the cops are going to probably be held to account. That's where I'm coming from with that. But I understand where you're coming from. And I think of, you know, in my book, I have a a story about an individual in Michigan. I'm from Michigan. I was in Michigan in 2008 when medical passed. And 2014, there was because when medical passed in Michigan, um, 
you know, if you all the if you met all these rules, then you were allowed to possess marijuana, mm-hmm. even though there was that structure in place. Right. The the po- police system still believed that it was wrong. And so only until probably the last four years or so has Michigan not pursued cannabis users as criminals, despite having legislation in place. Um, And an example of that is, you know, if you didn't have marijuana in a lockbox in your car, in your trunk, even though you're a medical card holder, they would put you in jail. Um, And it was, you know, there was really, despite legislation in that state, there was really just this, you know, years and years and years of, you know, jump through hoops to follow the rules or you're still a criminal. Um, So I, I think it'll be each individual policing body. And if there's additional hoops to jump through for your possession or, you know, and obviously there's concern about driving while intoxicated with cannabis. And I think that there'll be a movement towards that. Um, I do think that descheduling it um, will help tremendously, but I still think that there's years of reputation that will have to be done uh, to clean up and break down everyone's predisposed thoughts on, on what it means to be a user. <clears throat> and I would think it would probably be older generations that probably might still have that. But I, I think we're just getting to a point where newer generations, younger people are not so susceptible to it. And, and listen, you're going to have the issues with like the religious right. You're going to have people that are, they're going to be sanctimonious and they're going to just feel like, well, there's, there's something uh, about, just not willing to accept the benefits that the plan has. That's yes. going to be another thing. Now, I want to go continue more with you and talk more about the advocacy side. And what I also think is is the biggest problem is the portrayal by the media. And I've and we've talked about it. I mean, hell, I it was at our last U the last USCC Expo that we held before pandemic. You know, in Miami, which is attached with Cannabis Radio, their parent company. We held, you know, a particular session on the media's portrayal on cannabis. We took that as part. And then there's other areas that are going to be put in that same way as well. But I think there's a lot to be discussed on that part. I want to continue more here with Charlena Berry, the CEO of Cannabis Business Growth. And the name of the book is Breaking the Stigma, Racism, the Opioid Endemic, Lies and Inviting Grandma to the Dispensary. We're back after a short break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I'm here with Charlena Berry, CEO of Cannabis Business Growth and the author of Breaking the Stigma, Racism, the Opioid Endemic Lies and Inviting Grandma to the Dispensary. Of course, if you got to go look for the book, I'm always going to tell you, go to Amazon and take a look at it for yourself. It's available and it is available in Kindle hardcover and paperback. Charlena, 
I want to go take another passage from the book that I thought was very important. Quote, a lot of people are in the cannabis industry for financial reasons. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You also went on to say that, quote, I think that we are more fulfilled and successful in business when we have a purpose deeper than money alone. And breaking the stigma against cannabis, we can also break the stigma against addiction. We can also stop perpetuating a uh-huh. system that creates addicts and then blames them for addiction. We could try to save lives in the most literal sense, end quote. Now, we know there's a lot of... Uh, we know there are organizations out there pretty prominent that are trying to work on the advocacy route and trying to help those that, you know, there's one thing to try to avoid people from, from addiction, but then there's those that have been brought on that have been everything here. So there's organizations like the last prisoner project, pretty prominent support. <coughs> we, we appreciate what all the work that they do. Happy to bring them on the program when they do come on and they have things to announce. Along with Americans for Safe Access, the Cannabis Access Alliance, those are just a couple examples. You made mention of that quote, it's all connected for me. Cannabis, addiction, racism, end quote. Uh, This is a loaded question I'll ask, but really, what more could and should be done? So, um, based on my experience with addiction and my personal family, um, and what I continue to see, uh, and I, I think a lot of it is the stigma and misinformation. The medical system continues to use opioids, opiates as the default uh, for pain management. And um, my example is, you know, a friend of mine, uh, her 16-year-old son had hand surgery. And as a 16 year old, the first thing that they did is they offered him uh, an opiate based um, pill for his pain management. I believe that individuals that are exposed to opiates, there are a group of individuals that can take an opiate and there's not a problem and they put it away and, and their pain's gone and they never see it again. There's also a group of individuals that the moment they consume an opiate, it's an addiction for life. And it's something that doesn't go away. So when I think of the the systemically creating new addicts, right? I believe anybody who has an opiate-based addiction got it from a doctor or family or a friend. And as long as the medical system defaults to an opiate-based pain management, we are going to fundamentally create new addicts on a regular basis. Even in the states where there's recreational as well as medical use, our medical professionals still don't regularly look at cannabis as an alternative for pain management, or they don't even simply go to something like ibuprofen. Um, it's still the default response is something that's opiate based. And I think as a country that that's fundamentally extremely risky and perpetually creates new drug addicts. Um, no individual addicted to opiates said, I want to be an addict. That's what I want to do. It was something that, that happened to them with an injury of some sort. Um, and, these organizations do wonderful, wonderful, wonderful work. Um, 
I think there needs a mo- needs to be a movement within the medical industry itself to normalize and change theories around how and how pain should be managed. Um, some medical organizations have put really great rules in place with like three day limits and stuff like that. But, you know, as long as cannabis remains outside of our medical system and opiates are our default, we're going to continue to systemically deal with the creation of new um, new new addicts. And, and I think it's unfortunate. Well, that would lie <laughs> into having to get more education to the doctors, the healthcare professionals. They need to understand yes. the, the benefits and they do not need to be propagandized by big pharma. Correct. I mean, look, big pharma has a lot of money for everybody. So they're able to go ahead mm-hmm. and convince and persuade doctors, whatever they want. They're persuading politicians to, to quarters of a billion, uh, quarters of a billion dollars a year in lobbying efforts mm-hmm. compared to what Mar- what cannabis and marijuana is doing at $4 million a year. It's only going to be, you know, it's a matter of, I mean, there has to be a war chest to help out this kind of effort when it comes to trying to get legalization to happen. It's, it's money that that moves everything, and that's what's yes. moving all this here. And you know, the doctors are going to just fall along. They they need the money from some of these pharmaceutical companies to go ahead and keep their shops up. You know, the issues with malpractice they're reliant upon, especially if they're newer doctors. They're going to have to go to these drug companies. When they're coming in, hey, we have this product. You need to push it. What are you going to do? I mean, there's no other alternative for them. The, the system is put in the place. It's having to go ahead and put a chisel to the system and break it all down. I agree. I 100% agree with that. I just don't know how you do it. I mean, it's a system that's corrupt. I mean, we know government's corrupt. We know that big farmers corrupt. We know that, I mean, it's what what's going to happen now. I don't know what you do about that. That's it's it's a I mean, this is a discussion to have, but I don't know who's going to have the pockets to be able to make that happen. But that's where I feel like it's the way to do that. Now, what I think we can absolutely make a difference in and which is what I've been hampering on in this program and what I've been hampering on Canada's radio since we started is the media, the mainstream media. They are able to go ahead and craft and people still listen to the mainstream media. And, uh, you know, I'm just. I went to school as a journalism major, and I'm ashamed of the, of the practice. You know, it's, it's horrible. Now, Rolling Stone last January, they wrote about changing the conversation about cannabis through transparency. They made the point about the amount of PR firms that have embedded themselves in the cannabis industry. Now, look, that's how I met you, and that's how I've met other companies <laughs> out here. Listen, since 2016, I have a number of great PR people I've talked to I will not name names to, you know, keep anybody's name out of there. But I'm just saying it was pretty immediate. Once there was was some real legitimacy into the space, PR companies came in and knew that this there had to be representation or a right way to help put the best light for companies out there. So they all came in and they've only uh, only been able to make so much of a dent so far. And, you know, listen, these PR firms, they come from some really reputable backgrounds and decided to go into cannabis because they realized there's a way to get into this and they can really help the industry in some way. Now, they wrote in this story, quote, the next gatekeepers we need to enlist in this mission are the media who cover this space. We need to educate the public at large and change the perception around cannabis. I truly believe that 
to, to truly grow into the mainstream, the industry must broaden the media scope from the endemic media that organically cover the industry. This will shift away from a B2B-focused perspective and reader base predisposed to be cannabis advocates in some way to the mainstream media and the general public, end quote. So how important do you think it is that the mainstream media needs to start being on our side? Instead of attacking us on a regular basis, that they actually play <clears throat> ball with us. I think it's huge that they play ball with us. Um, you know, I think of some of the stories that leak out that that show the, the disdain for us still. I think of... Um, God, there was, a, I, I don't even follow him anymore, but there was a story recently that was reshared about stomachs and teenagers and, you know, these things where it's, I can't help from feeling that they're planted somehow with somebody against us still and that somebody's paying for the negative media and the negative press. And I do think the media has an obligation to cover us fairly. And I think the media was also trained by the Just Say No campaign and the war on drugs. And, um, you know, there was presidents that trained the media to um, attack marijuana. Marijuana is illegal because of, um, you know, the collusion between William Hurst and Harry Anslinger in, you know, the 30s and 40s. Um, and so marijuana has been a constant victim of bad press. And I think the mainstream media um, owes the industry um, fair coverage, um, show the good. You know, there, there's a lot of great people in the industry doing great things. And I think there's this huge temptation to focus on the negative. And it's, you know, there's there's so many great stories here. Let's let's focus on that. And so I, I totally agree with you in, in, in that the, their mainstream media has an obligation to give us a, a fair chance. I just don't know what you do to get there. I mean, they're owned by corporations and those same corporations are, are also being lobbied. They can also be persuaded and, and cajoled into what they're going to want to do with themselves. There's just, you know, for this discussion, Shirlina, I mean, I appreciate the discussion being had and I discussion the discussion you've, you've pointed out extensively in the book. It's just, it's such an issue to tackle from so many different fronts and I just wish I knew, you know, it's the discussion has to be had, but I don't know what you do to put that kind of money, that kind of support and have the right people in front. Cause even when it comes to the media, I, I always say as well, that whoever represents them on the cannabis industry on behalf of the media, we need better people. Like don't get me wrong. There's some great organizations out there. But every time I see them go on to a particular show, they'll get a five to seven minute slot. If if you're lucky, go on to a cable news show and they get destroyed because then they're going to be easily triggered by some question that is on purpose by asked by the host or the interviewer. And they're going to just create that same narrative they always want to get. So it's it's falling into the same trap. And then the same thing goes where. We should have a level of ignorance for those that are going to always have an onus against this industry anyway. We just need to live with the fact that it's same thing with the religious side. I mean, listen, people don't want to be interested in what the church or what or people are doing in that respect. That's fine. There's always going to be naysayers. There's always going to be detractors. At some point, maybe it's just time we just ignore them and just move along with ourselves because the industry, obviously, business to business is moving up very well. 
you know, as a business, everybody's making money off of it. And maybe there's just not much else that can be done. There, We can chip away at the stigma, but it will never go away. I think so. Um, did you see the Weed Maps Brock Ali commercial at Super Bowl? I did. So um, I loved the, the commercial. Um, and we all know that CBS refused to air it. I think what was appealing to me about it is that, you know, Weed Maps created some viral content and then pushed the idea that we are in fact not allowed. And I feel like actions like that to that, you know, it, it, the Weed Maps with Brock Ali, it was a harmless commercial about broccoli, right? Like, and it really called out all of these things. And then they challenged CBS. They said, hey, air this. And CBS said no. And so by creating that conflict and and pointing it out, it created a viral story to talk about. And I think, unfortunately, because we're not playing fair, right? Like, uh, people don't play fair with us. We have to continue to challenge things in a way creatively like weed maps did at the super bowl now how do you do that i don't know i'm you know my particular choice of challenging the industry was in publishing a book um and i think each person has to fight it in their own individual way um you know here you have real talk with you know on cannabis radio and um you know I don't know if there's a one size fits all solution and i think that that's discouraging but i feel like if we all fight a little bit one person at a time in our own way and then encourage the bigger companies like Weed Maps to do, you know, what they did at, at Super Bowl, I think that that will continue our plight and continue to, to help us get there. And, for, and again, I keep this apolitical, but I'll just put it like this. It's the same people that say, well, we need to care about climate change. What are you going to do to yeah. do that? It's, it's mm-hmm. really the same kind of almost like the same argument. What do you do to fix that? You can only do so much, and this is where this is a rallying around moment for the industry together in terms of that people just need to be on the same page. We can always respect the culture that came before us that brought this industry to light, but in order to bring ourselves up to the next generation, bring ourselves up to you know 20, 21st century where we are now, and really just show that, listen, we don't need to go ahead and we can keep putting reefer madness into the ground and bury it. It's never coming back. We're not going to deal with that anymore. And just realize we're going to have people that are going to just have this mindset. You can't change them, and it doesn't matter anymore. We could just convert people to realizing the truth. That's what needs to happen. If we could do mm-hmm. that, that's that's the best direction I think we can kind of go and do anyway. Now, one other section I want to go talk about to you, talk with you about after the break is social equity. Because if you're showing other communities that are disenfranchised or oppressed or, you know, they haven't had the chance to have second chances. And, you know, it's you're going to really with social equity, you're going to really find a way to go ahead and bring new people into the space. And that's where you convert a lot of people is for those that realize the advantages business wise, health wise that are going to learn what this plant can do. We're going to talk about that after a short break. But again, I'm here with Charlena Berry, the CEO of Cannabis Business Growth. The website for that is CannabisBusinessGrowth.com. And then 
She's also the author of Breaking the Stigma, Racism, the Opioid Endemic, Lies, and Inviting Grandma to the Dispensary. We'll be back. And again, that book is available in Kindle, hardcover, and paperback. Look for that. As we go to break, we'll come on right back. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. Welcome back. I'm here with Charlena Berry, the CEO of Cannabis Business Grove. And she's also the author of Breaking the Stigma, Racism, the Opioid Endemic Lies, and Inviting Grandma to the Dispensary. And by the way, I should mention your website also as well, which has everything so much more about the book and yourself, charlenaberry.com. Charlena, B-E-R-R-Y.com. Now, Charlena, we mentioned social equity before the break. I want to read you something from Westward in regards to social equity, which you wrote about extensively in the book. Should social equity policy be used by already existing millionaires in the cannabis industry, they ask. They mention this, that by design, in order to decrease the effects of the failed war on drugs and empower those most impacted, legalization must exist that clearly defines the terms. As it currently stands, the qualifying criteria for social equity in Colorado, cannabis contains vague objectives that are causing more obstruction to the movement than progress. <clears throat> thought it was a good point. They made a point here. Now, to be eligible for a social equity license in Denver, a business must be at least 51% owned by someone designated under the state's marijuana social equity program. That program makes you prove at least one of the following, that you or your family was arrested on cannabis charges, you can you earn less than 50% of the state median income, or you come from a community designated as a low economic opportunity zone. Now, we know a lot of states that have rolled out legalization recently have implemented social equity equity programs. We know New York State is pledging $200 million in this effort. New Jersey, Massachusetts, Arizona, obviously Michigan, where you came from. What do you think about some of the efforts being done and how it affects some of the instructions you offer to readers? Social equity is such a complex topic. Um, we have all these people that were unjustly put in jail for, for marijuana, right? That people are now making money off of. Mm -hmm. We've got these, you know, um, black and brown communities were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Um, you know, the, the, the rates of criminalization there are higher. I believe in the spirit of all social equity efforts. The execution of social equity efforts seems to fall apart. And... I feel like it falls apart because those millionaires or individuals who are already, you know, blessed with a uh, predisposition to win, um, they end up gaming the system. Um, and we can really see that in states like Ohio and Illinois. And, you know, Illinois' efforts were great, um, but the execution wasn't thought through in a way that was effective and now nobody's winning because everything's caught up in lawsuits. <clears throat> so I fundamentally believe in the spirit of the social equity. It's the implementation. I've only seen it successful in where I would say is Sacramento, Oakland, um, and, and Massachusetts. Um, I hope to see New Jersey's program and New York's program be successful. Um, but it's hard. Um, you know, some of it is that not everybody's meant to be a business owner, right? And so there's got to be policies in place that encourage um, 
more than just business ownership um, because not everybody's meant to. Even with the social equity programs, if you don't give individuals money, they still have to go find a source of funding um, as part of those programs. And so, you know, and you start talking about open a cannabis business, you know, $150,000, $200,000 isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start going through the permitting process, which is what, you know, my consulting company focuses on, I mean, I've seen just for permits, you know, individuals spending $100,000, $150,000 to jump through all the, the hurdles that are faced there, let alone when it comes down to whatever building costs um, you end up incurring. Um, you know, if you're a cultivator, you've got the investment of your, your infrastructure for lights and HVAC and, you know, all of that's not cheap. It's very expensive, right. you know, e- retailer, you know, depending on the rules, if you've got to hold property for a year to go through permits, well, people go broke on rent, um, waiting for that. And so, um, social equity is hard. I believe in it. I believe something has to be done. I appreciate all the States making attempts at it. Um, I think in, you know, a few years, we'll see if some of the new efforts in New Jersey and New York were effective. Um, but to date, very few places are actually getting it right, even though it is important. Um, and I am glad it's something that we all talk about um, because that's the only way to keep it important is if everybody's talking about it. <clears throat> One thing I also want to make mention of is eventually you're working on as well. You're also the COO of the Cake House. And I am. curated an offering of top shelf products in a wide variety of forms and functions. Uh, talk to me about this latest venture here with the, the Cake House. Obviously, you're still doing cannabis business growth, but this other venture, very interesting also. Please tell me about that. So um, I actually joined the Cake House in 2020 as a consultant, initially um, through cannabis business growth. Uh, last year, about a year ago, um, they asked me to join the company as their chief operating officer. Um, and um I joined around June of last year in August and September, we opened three stores, uh, one in Vista, California, one in Wildemar, California, and a store in Malibu. Um, and then since then we acquired another locations in Needles, California. And so we are up to four stores. Um, we've got a ton of stores in the pipeline. Um, We've got one in Michigan, a number all over California. Um, It's a really fun brand. I'd like to think that the brand is uh, tries to appeal to all ages. You know, um, we like to cake up everything. It's we joke internally. It's we're caking over. Um, And so it's definitely been an exciting endeavor Um, as COO. I get to help shape things like the guest experience. you know, our internal functions in terms of technology, uh, hiring practices, um, <clears throat> accounting to set up inventory procedures. Um, and so uh, it's definitely, it's an exciting brand and it's an exciting brand to watch um, us as we continue to explode and growth over the next year or two. Wonderful. So a few other websites we're going to bring up once again as we're going to wrap things up. Your personal website is charlinaberry.com. Uh, again, the book is Breaking the Stigma, Racism, the Opioid Endemic Lines, and Inviting Grandma to the Dispensary. It is available on Kindle, hardcover, paperback, and also wherever you can find books. 
Go and look for that. And cannabisbusinessgrowth.com. Charlena, really appreciate you taking time out. Uh, I was fascinated by what you were trying to go with in the book. And, you know, we need to have people to have the conversation. And, but really, I want to just give you a chance to give some closing thoughts. Now that you've put that book out there, people can, they're going to go and pick up the book and <coughs> read it for themselves. What is the ultimate goal that you feel like, uh, what, what do you, what would you wish that could be accomplished for those that feel empowered after reading the book? You know, when somebody picks up the book to read it, I think it's important for them to know that I wrote it um, with the spirit to make somebody better. Um, that is why I wrote it. When I decided to write it, it came from a place of, I can't hold this inside me anymore because I had all these revelations on how racism and opioids and cannabis and how they're all tied together. And then, you know, when I realized that we'd been lied to for so many years, um, you know, to me, it was this big, big epiphany. And I think a lot of people have that epiphany and me coming from kind of this place of believing cannabis was a Trojan horse to being a diehard advocate. Now to me, it's, it's important that that message comes out in the book. And I want somebody to walk away and feel like they have the obligation to do better in the industry, that they're empowered to do so, and that they're prepared to with, with business recommendations on how to be better retailers. Um, I fundamentally think that you know retail is the front line of the industry. Um, people in breaking down that stigma, you know, on an individual basis is in a relationship with a bud tender. And so from a retail perspective, um, those are anybody that's on the fence. The first place that they're going to go is going to be the Internet, right, in the media and look at that. But then the next place that they're going to go is inside a shop. Um, and if, you know, um, I appreciate the spirit of what old trap shops look like. Right. And, and why they were the nature um, of what they were, which is really just stand up places to sell marijuana and then you get raided and then you go to jail and you have to open up a new one. But I think it's to me, it's important that we all say, OK, hey, retailers, you're in the front line. You're representing all of us. You have to break this down one customer at a time. And that's what I really hope the reader takes from the book. Um, I see my book as a huge piece on advocacy. I want to propel us all forward. And that's really the core message that I have uh, in the book is, you know, make sure you know what where it comes from. You know, we hear the buzzwords, but, you know, this is what happened. And how do we do better? How do we each propel the industry forward um, one person at a time? Thanks so much for writing the book and also talking to us about it. Really appreciate you taking time out. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it and enjoyed chatting with you. Absolutely. Thank you. And let's just go ahead and go and look for the book and come back for another book business next time. We'll talk to you soon. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.